Well, I didn't get to do the announcements, uh, but there are two others that I didn't put on Keith's post-it notes. Uh, one, uh, please do not give any special greeting to Eliano for her birthday tomorrow. She does not want any attention drawn to that Ellie McFarland sitting. Uh, oh, it's today. Okay, yeah, so definitely not tomorrow because it's today, but don't make a big deal about it. She doesn't want me to say anything announcements, but I didn't because I didn't do announcements. Keith did announcements. But also, uh, we have a newly engaged couple, uh, Jackson and Josie. So praise the Lord for that. We're very excited to have them. Amen. <clears throat> God be praised for, for that blessing. Um, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we praise you for Christ holds all things together. Please keep him at the forefront of our, of our minds as we consider uh, a weighty subject this morning. May you be glorified. Amen. Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> we're not covering all of that. Uh, really, we're not even going to be able to cover all of verses 5 through 7, mostly just centering on one phrase. We'll get there in a minute, but I want to give context of this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And he goes, he goes on. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, which we sang together, if you didn't remember that that's what that song was, we sang through that before I came this morning. Paul emphasized the glory of Christ as the firstborn over all creation and over the coming new creation, Christ over all. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, which Keith covered for us two weeks ago, Paul speaks of the appearing of this Christ, the appearing that is to come. This is a reference to the return of Christ or to his second coming. His first coming, his first advent, arrival, appearing, uh, is what we celebrate each December uh, with Christmas, the incarnation, that first coming of Christ. He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended into heaven. And as he himself promised and the angels appeared in, in Acts chapter 1, spoke to his disciples, he will come again in like manner as you have seen him go up into heaven. That's the second coming of Christ. And the magnificent glory of Christ's return to earth is promised and described in various passages throughout the Bible. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. At his first appearing, Christ came in humility as a servant. And at his second appearing, though, Christ will come in glory, fully revealed as a king. And all of his people will share in his glory. 
His glory will be our glory, will be your glory. Not just glory that you will, will see, but glory that you will share. This promised truth, us sharing in Christ's glory, it should awe us, it should overwhelm us with love, with gratitude for Christ, and it should be the basis for the transformation that God works in us. We seek the things that are above with our glorious Christ. We set our minds or our affections on the glorious things that are above, not on the lowly, sinful things that are on earth. Christ will physically, visibly come again to this earth with glory that he will share with his people. But not everyone is part of his people. What does Christ's appearing mean for them? Paul wrote about this very question to the persecuted, afflicted church in Thessalonica. The same body, a few years later, that he wrote that uh, passage already read. Right? Coming, uh, the, uh, we are left until the coming of the Lord. The Lord himself will descend. Later, they, that, that was comforting them in the reality that some believers had died before the return of Christ. And now we know all of those believers had died and Generations for 2,000 years of believers have died before the coming of the Lord. But this church was experiencing persecution as we shift from 1 Thessalonians into 2 Thessalonians. And so as he's writing to a persecuted, afflicted church currently enduring that, a church like the few hundred believers that we know about in, in Somalia, for example, he wrote to them, comforting them with the two sides of Christ's return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So do you see the two sides of Christ's return or his appearing? He is coming in glory to grant relief to his people and he is coming in vengeance to punish his enemies. In our passage today, Colossians 3, verse 6, describes this as the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. You say that in the world today, it would, might as well be dressed in strange clothes with a sandwich board on your sign, screaming on a street corner. But it's true. The wrath of God is coming. And today I want to spend our time digging into this idea of the wrath of God. What is wrath? One dictionary, just the first search that I did, I think it was the Oxford Dictionary, which sounds really impressive. What is wrath, according to the Oxford Dictionary, provided this definition. Noun, literary or humorous, extreme anger, chiefly used for humorous or rhetorical effect. Incurred the wrath for putting the silverware in the wrong drawer. Ha ha ha, wrath, how silly. I wonder if this is telling of our culture that a term that used to be freely associated with God is now only exaggeration, as if God really doesn't have anything to be angry about. The wrath of God. Wrath is an outflow of anger. In some senses, it's, a, it's an intensification of it, but I don't think that it's just the feeling. 
I don't think it's the feeling itself. I think it's the exercise of that feeling. Wrath is anger that acts. In Psalm chapter, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 12, David is confronted with an enemy. The enemy is opposing him and accusing him. He claims innocence in this matter, although he, he, he throws himself at the feet of the Lord. If I have done this, then let me be pursued. Let me be torn down. If I deserve your judgment on this matter, then let it come to me. And then he declares his innocence, uh, his righteousness, not in a sinless perfection, but in a, I have not done what he claimed that I did. I am innocent in this matter. And since he was opposed in these things, he calls on God to judge his enemies for him. And he gives us this truth, Psalm 7, verses 11 through 12, and it goes on a little bit beyond that. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword, sharpening it for the day of judgment. If a man, if a woman, if a sinner does not repent, God will ready the sword of his wrath. Nahum begins his prophecy with these words, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Keith opened our gathering today praying in the words of Scripture, the words that God has given us to speak of himself, that the Lord is slow to anger. And it does not say that he is absent of anger. God's wrath, here's my definition, God's wrath is his holy, righteous anger acting against sin. God's holy Righteous anger acting against sin. Here's one author's explanation similar to this. You know, God is holy. That's a whole sermon. That's a whole series. That's the whole Bible. God is holy. Because we are not holy, God is angry. He is filled with wrath and fury far more than we can imagine. Indignation every day. Sword sharpening arrow-drawing fury, far more than we can imagine. And it is a pure and holy wrath, not like losing one's temper. Just like a blasphemous caricature that we might so often think of God. God is so holy that he cannot break his own law. And being angry against sin, God will punish all unrepentant sinners in eternal hell. What we read of as the lake of fire. God, what is wrath? God's wrath is his holy, righteous anger acting against sin. What does God's wrath do? When God acts in his holy, righteous anger, when he acts against sin, what does it look like? To see God's holy, righteous anger acting against sin, his wrath, we could look at the Garden of Eden. We could look at the flood. We could look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We could consider the 10 plagues of Egypt against Egypt. We could consider the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wandering. We could consider the annihilation of the Canaanites from the promised land and so on and so forth. The Old Testament is this two-sided reality of the wrath and the mercy of God falling on sinners. I want to share one story with you, though, from 1 and 2 Kings that the Lord led me to in my reading this week. King Ahab of Israel was terrible. Ahab and Jezebel. You remember that winning couple? The Bible summarizes Ahab this way. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Because the inhabitants of the land of Canaan were given over to idolatry. They had polluted the land. God, God wipes them out. Genocide. 
wipes them off of the face of his promised land, brings his covenant people into it, and then Ahab, like reading history as if it was an instruction manual, what should, this, what should happen in this land, gives himself, sells himself to idolatry. One of the more detailed accounts of Ahab's wickedness is found in 1 Kings chapter 21. King Ahab had a palace, a castle, one of many probably, uh, in a place called Jezreel, and he wanted the vineyard that was right next door to his palace, a vineyard owned by a man named Naboth, just a normal Israelite. So he offered to give Naboth a different vineyard in exchange for his or to buy it from him. I mean, so far, so good. It's, it's fine. It's not fine, but seems fine. This vineyard was Naboth's family inheritance, though, and family inheritance was supposed to stay in the family. That's what God had commanded them. Uh, Naboth is unwilling to sell. He's going to keep his family vineyard. In response, Ahab pouted to his wife Jezebel, who promised to get the vineyard for him. And she kept her promise by forming a conspiracy against Naboth, to have him falsely accused of blasphemy in front of his entire city, for which charge, having cursed God and the king, Naboth was stoned to death by his neighbors for the holiness of God. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Interesting, isn't it? Ahab's coveting of his neighbor's property led to bearing false witness, murder, and theft. And here's what happened next. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, the prophet, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, previous kings who were also idolatrous and wiped off the face of the earth in judgment. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. The next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 22, King Ahab dies in battle. And then they bring him back into the city, bury him as a king. Uh, And then they take his blood. He died in a chariot in a battle. They take his bloody chariot. They washed the chariot that he died in by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Then 1 Kings Kings ends. We move into 2 Kings, two parts of one story. And the story moves on, and as you're reading, you could forget about Ahab. You could forget about Naboth. There's a new king, Ahab's son, new kings in Judah, as kings goes back and forth between these two things. Twelve years go past. God has not forgotten his promised curse on Ahab's family. And in 2 Kings chapter 9, Elijah has been replaced by Elisha. Elisha the prophet anoints a man named Jehu to be king over Israel. Jehu kills Ahab's son, Joram, who ruled in his place in fulfillment of God's curse against Ahab. Then Jehu had the queen mother Jezebel thrown out of a window in her tower where the dogs ate her corpse. Then Jehu had 70 sons of Ahab. This at least included children if it was not exclusively children. Executed and decapitated. Saying, 
Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. All his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left none remaining. Then he drove back to Samaria and struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. And finally, Jehu called for a solemn assembly of everyone in Israel who worshiped the false god Baal along with Ahab and Jezebel. Make sure everybody's here. We're gonna have a huge party. If you think Ahab worshiped, this is great. If you think Ahab worshiped Baal, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jehu is gonna worship Baal. All of you guys come. Make sure nobody's missing. And if there are any like imposters, not real Baal worshipers, like get them out of here. We want the best of the best. They pack this temple out, filling the temple. And Jehu had every single one of them killed. Then they demolished the pillar of Baal, demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. Kill him, burn it down, pee on their graves. Why tell this story? Because it demonstrates so clearly that the wrath of God came on the house of Ahab. I read this story again earlier this week, as I said, and I was struck with its severity even to the point of my mind wondering if it was overdone. Hundreds, if not thousands of people, human beings like us, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, some even young children, they were mercilessly executed. And not just part of a regime change. Like you could try to read that in, well, that happens when one king overthrows another king. That's not how the story presents it. It's not how Jehu saw himself. It's not how the author of Scripture presents this. This is not just some sort of tumultuous regime change. This was at the instigation of God. This was his divine command of judgment. His holy, righteous anger acting against sin. And perhaps this goes against our modern sensibilities. I mean, people shouldn't just act like this, right? What's, a, what's Jehu's deal? People shouldn't act like this. And since we are then so tempted to reduce God to something made in our image, if people shouldn't act like this, then God shouldn't act like this. But who are we to stand in judgment of God? He is not like us. Who are we to dictate his actions and Responses. Who do we think we are? God is angry. Why? Why is God so angry? If you created a house to live in, designed it yourself, built it yourself for you and for your family to live in and enjoy, how would you feel if a gang broke in by night to hold a party overflowing with alcohol, drugs, and and immorality, vandalizing the house that you built, and then ending their revelry by setting it on fire? How would you feel? How should a king who cares for his citizens and his kingdom How should a king respond to rebels within his own realm seeking to harm his citizens and overthrow his rule? How should a king respond to that type of rebellion? How would you expect a loving father to feel when his children are mocked, abused, and murdered? Should a husband not be jealous regarding the affections of his wife? Leanne is mine, and I am hers. And I am jealous of her affections. She is jealous of mine. Is that not right? And is a husband 
has been cheated on, not just and right to take legal action against the adultery of his wife. And all of these, they serve as mere pictures to teach us how God feels and responds toward idolatrous sinners, those who have ruined his creation, rebelled against his rule, mistreated his children, and cheated against his loving faithfulness. God is angry because of sin. And we should expect nothing less than his holy, righteous anger acting against sin. We should expect nothing less than his wrath to be poured out against sinners. Who is that? Who deserves God's wrath? If we use the language of Colossians... Those who remain citizens of the domain of darkness deserve God's wrath. Those who are unredeemed. There are those who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, the enemies of God, unreconciled to him. We go on to chapter 2. Those who have been taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Who deserves God's wrath? Those not with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 1, and on. Verse, verses 13 and 14 those who remain unforgiven, those who remain in his debt because of their sin. Verse 20 of chapter 2, those who remain alive to the things of this world. And all of this encompassed those who have failed to receive Christ Jesus the Lord or failed to accept the fact that Jesus Christ is God over old and new creation. And having failed to receive him for who he is, those who are idolaters, that's who deserves God's wrath. All idolaters, worshipers of other false gods, except for instead of Christ, And that's the entirety of covetous humanity refusing to give God what he demands and deserves. We need both of those. If you think it's just what God demands, then you could think of him as throwing this selfish little tantrum begging you for something. But he doesn't just demand it. He deserves it. This world is his. You are his. God demands what he deserves, which is the loving worship of all humanity made in his image. Not only do we refuse to give God what he demands and what he deserves, but we take what he demands and we take what he deserves and we rob it from him and we give it to created things. Pale, terrible Alternatives to that. Try to use that in a, a marriage-type picture, but not a great one for a mixed audience of different ages. A husband robbing affection from his wife and giving it to some pathetic alternative made in his own image. Christ Jesus demands and deserves all that is his. All that is his. What is his? The loving worship of those created in his image. It's his. He deserves it and he demands it. He will have what is his. And when we set our affections on something other than Christ... And when we long for or covet something else to satisfy us and fill us, we aren't just missing out. 
When you love something other than Christ, you are missing out, but you're not just missing out. You are blasphemously, I am blasphemously insulting and offending Christ. We are committing cosmic treason with our every act of sinfulness, as R.C. Sproul put it. Cosmic treason, every sin. Well, not that little one. Yes, that little one. Not someone else's sin, our sin. Every single one of them, a blasphemous, adulterous, destructive offense to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is all in all. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul writes in verse 5. John Piper wrote on this to try to help us see the idolatrous heart of covetousness. Covetousness is a, is a longing, right? Like, I, I want things. I, I, I want a planer for, for my wood projects. Um, I want more things made out of leather. Uh, I, I want to get to play disc golf more. I want the stage to be finished. It's beautiful, but I want that to be done, right? So we, we want things. I want lunch this afternoon. I want a nap, right? There's a lot of things that we can just sort of want, and that's okay, right? God created all things richly for us to enjoy and to receive with gratitude, to receive from a loving creator. But when we take those things, rather than from God, and we, we have them instead of God, and we, we don't just want them, we have to have them. Have to have them. Obsessed with them. Cannot be, will not be happy without them. This, this heart of covetousness, this is the thing that will make us happy. So Piper says, the law, covetousness, covetousness is the loss of contentment in Christ so that we start to crave other things to satisfy the longings of our heart. And you know the difference between just the stuff that you want and the stuff that you want, right? Satisfaction of the longings of our heart, affections, right? just minds, attention, loves, right? The stuff, the deep inside of you, who you are type things should be pointed and given to Christ. That's why it's like, love the Lord your God, love Jesus with all your heart. And then life flows out from that. It's his. He demands it. He deserves it. And we take it from him and we give it to other things. Covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5, he summarizes it with all of that, but he uses as an example, the first example, not the only example, it's not exhaustive, but he starts off by saying that sexual sin demonstrates the idolatry of covetousness. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, that's, that, that's those lusts, those have to have. It's what a lust is. I have to have this. And sexual sin so clearly demonstrates this for us, but it's not the exclusive nature of what lusts are. As if if you don't sin in that way, that you're not a covetous idolater. It's just one example, a very, very powerful example, a very obvious example that every form of that longing, I will have what I want no one can tell me no. This is who I am. This is what satisfies and fulfills me. And it's other than Christ. It's covetous idolatry. We are obsessed in our sinful, covetous hearts, obsessed with having and getting and taking whatever it is that we desire, regardless of any other considerations. I will have what I want. We want what we want. We won't let anyone, especially not God, get in our way. And if he won't give it to us, we don't want anything to do with him. And this is because we have replaced him with other desires, those desires that serve as our gods, our idols. Covetousness is idolatry. And you see 
people worshiping their desires throughout history. It didn't just start with a Burgerfell, right? It didn't just start in the 60s. It started in the garden. And it's continued since. And it shows itself so clearly in those type of things. It's just what, what a picture should be a caricature, but it's not, of idolatrous covetousness. I will love whom I will love. I will have what I want to have. No one can tell me, no, you can't tell me who to love, who to want, who to desire. And don't just point to someone else. Don't just point to San Francisco. Don't just point to some other LGBTQI LMNOP community. It's not just them. It's you. It's me. Our desires that ramp up into idols revealed in our covetousness. Right? The, the pornography that, that, that we would view. Idolatry. Blasphemy. All forms of these type of things. Anything outside of what God has blessed. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. I want that vineyard. I'll pay you for that vineyard. I'm not selling. Murder. You covet and and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And it's not just property. I want respect. I want to be listened to. I want dinner at this certain time. I want, I want, I want, I have to have. Why won't you give it to me? Covetousness idolatry. You do not have because you do not ask God. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions and pray covetously and God will not allow himself to be replaced in idols by idols in answer to our prayer. He's too merciful and good to us for that. You adulterous people. Thank you, James. Woo. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, whoever fails to see that they have died with Christ to the things of this world, but instead seeking to still live, failing to put those things to death, failing to put them off, but instead picking them back up, whether it's things like sexual immorality or rule-keeping reputation, failing to put those things to death, keeping them on as if you still lived in this world the same way that you used to, puts you in enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, to live in this world, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God made you. You are his. He wants you. He deserves you. He demands you. Your heart, your love, your worship. To fail to give him what he demands and deserves is Sinful, blasphemous, idolatry. And God is angry over idolatrous sin. And in his holy, righteous anger against sin, he will act against it. Colossians 3, verse 7. Verse 6, on account of these things, and we could be like, oh yeah, the sins of those people, whoever they are. So convenient to have a them to point our fingers to well, someone else. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And maybe we're like, yeah, and it should. They're wicked. The wrath of God should come on them. What does verse 7 say? In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Hey, you're a covetous idolater. I'm an adulterer against God. We are sinners. The wrath of God should come against us. You deserve God's wrath. 
It's not funny. It's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. You deserve it, and it's coming. Perhaps as we considered the wrath of God toward Ahab's family, you were thankful that he wasn't your relative. He deserved it. They deserved it. Glad it wasn't me. Do the words of Jesus echo in your mind? Ah, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The wrath of God is coming on account of the sins of humanity, which includes us. Hear what God has revealed. This isn't just about Ahab. And in fact, that's tame in comparison to what is to come. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, the, the culmination, the majestic climax of the wrath of God. John said, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Books of, from October 15th, 1984 to whenever I die, books would contain every thought, every word, every deed, every motivation, every sin in detail provided for that. And how about you? You know, there's a book, your name on it, with every sin you have and will ever commit. Things that you have forgotten are not forgotten in heaven. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then there's the vision of the new heavens, the new city where we will live. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The wrath of God is coming. How can it be escaped? How do we escape God's wrath and salvation rescue from the coming wrath of Christ is only found in Christ, found by dying in him and rising in him. The gospel message that the Colossians had believed, so they weren't in the domain of darkness anymore. They had been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. They weren't enemies anymore. They were reconciled to God. They had been delivered from their sin and its dominion. The wrath of God that would demand their life had fallen on Jesus. The wrath of God that I deserve poured out on the innocent, we sing sometimes. Jesus took the wrath of God for our sin bore it, absorbed it, shielded us from that. Another song that we sing, right? Jesus stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. You are in Christ. You are protected from the wrath of God that you deserve because Jesus took the wrath that you deserved. See how important it is to have died in him? You die in him or you die in you. You rise in him to life or you rise in you to death. There is no escape. It doesn't end. The wrath of God is coming on account of our sin. The sins in which you either still walk or the sins that you used to walk in. Which is it? Have you been set free like this? Are you in Christ by faith? If we understand the severity of the danger that we deserve from God's wrath, then we can and will appreciate the greatness of the blessing that we have been given from God's grace, his mercy, which are ours in Christ. 
My whole family should be wiped out from my sin, but that's not how God's going to treat us because of his mercy and grace in Christ. And if we can grasp that severity of wrath and that lavishness of grace, we will live differently. This isn't just, we're going to enter into put to death, put off, put on, Husbands, wives, masters, slaves, children. We're going to get into these commands that flow out of this passage. How are we supposed to live our lives? But none of it works or makes any sense if you don't know what it means, the treasure, infinite worth of the fact that we can be in Christ. That that wrath of God is not against us anymore. Like transformation flows out of that. But if you just try to jump ahead, well, what do I need to do? You just miss all of it. That's why Paul has just laid out the glory of Christ, the redemption that comes to us. And then we have like sort of a brief few verses of like, and it affects everything in your life. Praise God. Signed Paul. Right? Like we want just rule after rule after rule. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What you do is you glory in Christ, and live in him. I have a new life. I am new. I don't have to sin anymore. Having been set free from wrath and sin, we will long to live in that freedom. Who wants to live enslaved anymore? No one has ever wanted to live in slavery, but we're enslaved to sin until Christ set us free. You've been set free. Why would you want to live in slavery anymore? Who wants to put chains back on? How foolish is that? That's what we do with our sin, though, every single time. That's what I do. That's what you do. Let me get those chains back on. (laughs) You are free from that. Why would I want to put back on death? I want to live in life. Why would I want to put back on covetousness and idolatry when when I've seen and beheld the glory of Christ, the firstborn over all creation, old and new, the one who by his blood reconciled me to himself? Having been raised from death, we will long to put to death that which is earthly in us. We will long to live alive in Christ. There will be a day, a day, a calendar day. We don't know when it is, but it's coming. August something. December something. October 2nd? A day. When Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the God of all creation, there will be a day when he returns in glory and in wrath. Both. Which of those two you experience on that day and for the rest of eternity depends on whether you are in him by faith, as Paul has emphasized again and again in Colossians. Enjoy Christ Now, enjoy Christ forever. Reject Christ now, separated from him, enduring his wrath forever. Wrath of God is coming. Unless you repent, you will perish forever. But if you repent... You will know life and freedom in the glorious presence of God forever. I hope that this, who am I to speak of the wrath of God, just one who deserves it? Christ, though, like his body broken under the wrath of God and his blood poured out before and to satisfy, to appease the wrath of God. So if you are in Christ by faith, in need of putting to death that which is earthly that remains in you, right? This is written to Christians. You used to live in this. You have put it off. You need to keep putting it off. If you're like, yes and amen, I deserve that wrath But I believe with all my heart that Christ has paid my debt. 
all my sin borne by him. And the table is a place of gratitude and worship and love and awe to be received by faith. Right? So we come mindful of what we deserve and what he endured, so what we will not endure. Let's, let's come in joyful awe, mourning and rejoicing at the same time, and looking forward and saying with Paul and with John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come in glory to free our brothers and sisters in North Korea and in Afghanistan and in Somalia and in Nigeria and in India and in China and in America and around the world. Those who are afflicted come in wrath. But thank you that your coming is glory for us. Right? So come to the table, followers of Christ. Come to the table. Father, I, I want to I want to praise you that you are a God of wrath, holy and righteous anger that will act against sin. Thank you that you are slow to anger, that your patience and long-suffering are, are immense, giving us the opportunity and calling us to repentance and offering mercy. Uh, and we would rather have starved than come, like we sang. Why, what, why would we be made to hear your voice, to respond, but by your mercy and grace? Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your spirit that calls us to yourself. Grant repentance to us. Grant us, give us faith. Help us to bow before your, your holiness. And thank Jesus for dying for us. Amen.